Matterlife. Hello and welcome to episode six, the final episode of this season of The Nevers. This is a jam-packed episode and this will also be a jam-packed podcast review. I'm AJ, if, if this sounds familiar at all, and here with me is Maka. So let's get started. Second time lucky. Please note, there will be spoilers everywhere in this review. So you have been warned, Warned. mofos. (laughs) Who? Well, the focus of this episode has to be Molly slash Amalia slash Stripe slash Zephyr. Who are the last two? Listen on to find out. What? The season closer, episode six of The Nevers. Will any of our questions relating to this show be answered? Of course they will. Will other questions emerge? You bet. Where? Everything seems to be set in London. When? Here's the change. Some of this is set in the Victorian era. Some of it is set in a totally different time period. (laughs) Why? Well, halfway through, and it seems it's time to answer some of the bigger questions of this series. Not everything is revealed, though, and as noted before, some new questions and mysteries emerge. The episode opens in a nighttime scene. A group of soldiers is seen parachuting out of some sort of plane into a war zone. On the ground, they start to engage in in combat, using their guns to fight for their lives. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Isn't this supposed to be the Nevers, the show set in Victorian Britain with women running around in their petticoats all the time? Where's Amalia? Where's Malady? What the fuck is going on? Are you drunk, Macca? <laughs> I know. I mean, I know you were thinking about giving up on the Nevers, so you've started watching something else instead? Shut up, AJ. Oh. Apparently, the group of soldiers are from an organization known as the Planetary Defense Coalition, PDC for short. They are fighting an opposition group called the Free Life Party. The PDC soldiers are trying to infiltrate a building. Gunfire is exchanged, plenty are killed. But at the last second, it becomes clear that one of the dead PDC soldiers on the ground was playing possum, holding toxic coolant pods in her mouth so she wouldn't be detected by heat sensors. Crazy, hey? She leaps up at the last second and saves the lives of the PDC soldiers. She's tough. And her name is Stripe. I dubbed her Scarface. We get an ominous title card, Chapter 1, Stripe. The PDC soldier fight their way into the building they want to infiltrate, capturing one of the free life party leaders in the process. So here we are, five minutes in, And this episode seems to have little to do with what we have seen so far. Clearly, it has been part of the same show, so this is a pretty bold move on the part of the creators of the series. In a lot of ways, this program has been a rough ride so far, but it looks as if they've saved the roughest and most confusing elements Mm. till the very end of the series. It better pay off. As the PDC squad set out on their mission, the Free Life Party captive keeps babbling away. He asks for the names of his captors, but his informed names are sacred. Apparently, this is a belief exclusive to the PDC. The PDC set about to finish whatever their mission is, even they seem unsure. The main task seems to be to explore the building they have entered. 
the PDC party questions Stripe. She is PDC. She's not part of their squad and they're unsure why she's there alone and wary of her as a result. Some nice characterizations are quickly set up here. It's pretty obvious that this part of the episode won't last for too long. I can't remember the name of the girl who plays Stripe. She does a really good job, I thought. Oh, she's uh, awesome. Man. Australian actress. She was in Farscape and all these other shows. She, so she's got a good pedigree when it comes to science fiction programs. So I can see why, even though in some ways it's a minor role, I can see why they cast her. It was a good choice. Mm. She's referred to as Stripe and identifies herself as part of the 31st Grand Pride. Everyone in her squad died but her. She's taken to the building's medical bay. The squad's medical officer, Nitta, asks her about temporal issues and Stripe admits that she gets flashbacks. She then uses a future technology to help Nitta, who was shot in the leg, as they discuss the squad's mission. Stripe already knows they're looking for a Galanthi. She knows there was a, a spatial anomaly over the area, which is a portal that Galanthi come through. She also discovers that Nitta is a spore, or as Nitta prefers, emphatically enhanced, which means that she has swallowed spores from the Galanthi, gifting her with the understanding of Galanthi language and technology. Good interaction between these two characters. One might seem a little bit familiar to us, but more of that later. As Stripe pokes around the med bay, she discovers artifacts from the late Victorian period. She observes that this seems small for a Galanthi project, as others have, others have included water purifying systems and stabilizing tectonic plates. Nitta informs her that free life has bombed the sites of all the projects and killed all but one or two of the Galanthi. So in spite of their powers and all that sort of stuff, the Galanthi don't seem to be able to save themselves from getting <laughs> brutalized by humans. God, you'd think they'd be stronger than that. Um, so it seems that free life has a goal of purging the world of the Galanthi, even if such an act will probably mean the end of humanity. They find a vegetable garden, which evidently is a site that most of the team has not seen before. The garden chamber leads to another door, through which they find a group of dead humans strung up over a pit, with their blood dripping down in, into the hole. Venturing downstairs, they encounter a Galanthi curled up in a glass dome in the ceiling. The Free Life General, now ungagged, admits the previous Free Life squad didn't have the firepower to kill this Galanthi when they arrived, so instead they tortured it by murdering the people it cared for. Once again, what does he mean they didn't have the firepower to kill it? And uh, I, I don't know, just a bit illogical. That's okay, I can forgive that in this episode. A lot of brutality in this part of the episode. Clearly we are, we are at the end of a, what's been a long war for humanity. One side fighting to protect the Galanthi and the work they're trying to do for humanity. The other side determined to destroy the efforts of these aliens. The Free Life General tells the PDC soldiers that he called in an incursion the moment his team landed. If they want to survive, they'll have to kill the Galanthi and close the portal it created, which Free Life fears will enable even more Galanthi to reach Earth. The PDC group splits up to take on separate tasks, and the Free Life captive attempts to convince his guard to come around to his way of thinking. I'll just jump in there, and I'll just point out you know, we're a couple of pages in now, and this is really still only the first five, ten minutes of the episode, and they've mm. covered all this stuff. It's like, whoa, just just overload. Anyway, yeah. From the medical bay, Stripe and Nitta hear shooting. They find the free life captive has been set free and shot several of the soldiers. 
The free life soldier wants to kill the Galanthi, but one of the PDC soldiers explains they don't have to. The portal isn't there, so the Galanthi can bring more of its kind to Earth, but so it can leave. Stripe shoots the free life captive, but the PDC soldier who guarded him appears and shoots Nida. Stripe kills him and then goes to the medical bay where she drinks two bottles of some sort of toxic liquid. Just as she's about to die, the Galanthi's growing, oh, sorry, the Galanthi's glowing blue arms reach around her. And as the Galanthi recedes into the portal, Stripe's body goes lifeless. There's a, there's a nice little scene with um, Stripe there as she comforts Nitter, Nitter as she dies. It's very well done, very, mm. very sympathetic, that sort of thing. I, I liked a lot of the writing in this episode. The scripting was actually a bit punchier than usual, it was really well done. Um, it's clear that even the even a lot of the PDC soldiers are conflicted by the nature of the war. Nita suffers a very sad death. Worth noting that as Stripe dies, the Galanthi passes through her. Very even, very end of Evangelion, lol. So what does chapter one have to do with the rest of, rest of the series? You'll have to be patient. Suddenly, we're back in Victorian London with a title card, chapter two, Molly. We see Amalia, who goes by the name of Molly in her earlier life. Molly has a tough life and an accent very different to the one we are used to. She works at a bakery and flirts with a man named Varnum. Unfortunately, Varnum doesn't have the money to get married, but Molly's had another proposal, which from the shop's owner encourages her to, to take. Molly decides to take her advice when she's let go from her job. So poor, poor Molly in this world. Just, just a really tough life. Very weird to see... Um... Amali with such a different Amali with such a different accent. Full credit to Laura Donnelly for pulling this off so well. I don't know. I still, mm-hmm. I, I still think it, the the accent she was doing struck me as more of an Irish accent, which I'm sure is probably more Laura Donnelly's original speaking accent since she's from Northern Ireland. I think when she's interviewed in the um, behind the scenes stuff, I think she's putting on a bit more of a British accent. But anyway, Molly ends up married to a very rough man, Thomas True. She moves in with him and his ailing mother and makes deliveries for the bakery for a living. She suffers multiple miscarriages. Thomas suddenly falls ill and dies. Molly learns that all she will inherit from him are the debts which which will be nearly impossible to pay off. On August 3, 1896, instead of making her deliveries, she gives up and jumps into the River Thames to drown herself. Molly was really putting up with a bunch of crap marrying that fat. Oh, sorry, not fat. What do we say again? Um, uh, Port, Portly. Portly. <laughs> he was the butcher, wasn't he? He was the butcher guy. Yeah, no shaming here. But I guess <laughs> this was the way of life for many back in that era. Sometimes for some women, you really did almost have to take the very first offer of marriage because mm. there was never a guarantee you were going to get another one. The next part of the episode is entitled Chapter 3, The Mad Woman in the Tains. When Molly is pulled out of the river, she is committed to an asylum. But this isn't the woman who went into the water. This woman is confused, has an American accent, and is seeing snippets of the future. She also curses a lot and is a capable fighter. So when she strikes the asylum matron, she's knocked out and shackled to her bed. When she comes to, Sarah introduces herself. Amali is immediately suspicious of her, especially because Sarah shares her name so easily. Amalia then panics when she realizes she should be dead and she's not in her body. So, Sarah, 
as we all know, and I'm sure we'll get mentioned later on, Sarah eventually becomes Malady. More of that later. So Stripe, so, you know, the events become clear at this point as to what happened, you know, from the very start of the series. So Stripe has been sent back in time by the Galanthi to try to undo the events in the Victorian era that lead to the terrible events of the future. So after all this, it is revealed that Amalia is, has effectively been Kyle Reese all along. More plagiarism, <laughs> but I don't really have a problem with this. It answers all the little clues that have been given in the series. Amalia saying to the beggar king when he threatens to cut her face in episode one, and she says, that's not my face, and so on. A nice bit of plotting and planning that has paid off. The only problem is that a lot of the audience might have given up on the show already as being too confusing. Valid point, Macca? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I was, like I said, I was yeah. out the door pretty much after five My as my wife. Yeah. She was out after, was it three or four or something yeah, like that? But Yeah, yeah exactly. So <laughs> it's, it's like they played their potentially winning card a little bit too late, guys, but we'll see. While this revelation doesn't eliminate all the confusion, it goes a long way in helping to explain what the actual point of this series is. Later, she overhears Sarah, who we know will eventually become Malady, telling another patient about seeing the Galanthi in the sky. Sarah thinks what she saw was God. Other patients don't believe Sarah saw anything, but Amalia knows the truth of exactly what happened. Amalia meets oh, Horatio Cousins, who's working as a doctor at the asylum, when she realizes he's touched. She tells him everything about herself and they start an affair. Through cousins, she learns that the spores of, of the Galanthi dropped imbued people with different supernatural, aka mutant powers. This confuses her as in her time, the people affected by the spores just become more attuned to the Galanthi and know how to help them. However, in Victorian London, no one appears to have that ability. Cousin points out that Amalia could be talking about herself, but she passionately rejects the idea. So much exposition and plot points generally explained in this episode that you have had to hang on, that you have to hang on really tight and focus on the events. It's a lot of fun, but it's exasperating at the same time. Amalia, the self-doubting hero. A cliche, I know, but I don't mind it here. Later, a very hairy Dr. Haig, is that, is that Haig? Yeah, yeah comes to visit Amalia and Sarah. He's seeking out members of The Touched for his research and asks to talk to each of them separately. When he talks to Amalia, she lies. She acts like her belief in her ability to see the future is actually just part of her madness and says that she only told Sarah she saw the lights in the sky to make Sarah happy. Sarah tells Dr. Haig the truth, however, and Dr. Haig takes Sarah away. Haig falls for Amalia's deception very, very easily, but whatever. He still thought he caught a live one with Sarah. Here, here we see that Amalia values her mission so much that she will sacrifice friends to successfully carry it out. Could be ominous for her present day, friends. <laughs> you ultimately get a lot more sympathy for Sarah as a result of this. I felt sorry for her. Poor girl, sold out by everybody. No wonder she lost her mind. Amalia spends her days attempting to embrace her new English identity. She enlists the help of her fellow patient to learn Victorian-era manners, posture, and a proper English accent. A fun part of the episode, 
could have had a little bit more of this wouldn't have hurt even though the episode was jam-packed but anyway as time goes on amalia virtually starts to run the asylum so when her case comes up for review she assumes they won't discharge her to ensure she can secure her freedom on her own she amasses a cache of weapons that she keeps under her bed but they find them during her hearing Probably the least logical part of the episode, but that's still okay. Let's keep going. She ends up in a padded cell where Lavinia Bidlow comes to see her. Lavinia gets Amalia out and makes her head of a newly created orphanage for the touched. Amalia doesn't seem too wary of Lavinia's motives. We, as the audience, however, know that she should not be trusted. The last part. Chapter four. True. The episode then jumps forward to 1899 for the day of Malady's hanging. Amalia and her team have drilled into the earth to find the Galanthi, only to encounter soldiers who they didn't anticipate would be on guard. While most of the group fights them off, Amalia falls into the, into the drill site and is sucked into the hole it creates. She's finally deep enough to find the Galanthi at the site where Dr. Haig had been excavating. Amalia is disappointed to find the Galanthi is still in the ceiling, just like it was in the future. Same position, different circumstances. Be fair, Amalia. Amalia looks to the Galanthi for hope and instruction. Uh, Amalia looks to the Galanthi for hope and instruction, but doesn't seem to get any. As she laments the situation, she puts her hand on the orb. It gives her a vision that knocks her off the platform. She sees images that appear to be from both her life and the life of the real Amalia True. Her vision stops on, on a flashback in which, which she told Penance about who she really is. Penance is confident that they can change the future. The vision then moves on to images of people from her life. The vision then moves on to images of people from her life. A female voice asks if, it's, if she thought she was the only one there from the future. Then Dr. Haig's grotesque guards run into the room followed by a vision of Myrtle, all dressed up fancy-like, telling Amalia in English that she will need to forget some part of the vision. Amalia hits the ground and sits up as the guards run into the room. With the realisation that this part of the vision is taking place right now, Amalia goes into combat against them. She fights her way through the excavation site's elevator, but can't get it to work. However, less better, the touch girl who can make things float and fell victim to Dr. Haig appears and uses her powers to lift Amalia to the to street level. That wasn't staged perfectly well because I couldn't tell that it was Elizabeth who used her powers to elevate her. I saw Elizabeth there staring at her as she went up. Did you pick up on that? Or I, I was kind of like, what's going on? And then the, when you saw sort of saw her, then it was like, oh yeah, she okay, she's she somehow has come out of her zombified state yeah. and and helping Amalia out but yeah I was kind of like oh, oh what's going on <laughs> okay so a new bit a big new mystery it seems that somebody else from the future is operating in the Victorian era we are not told who or what their mission is so online speculation has been rampant people are going nuts over that one trying to figure out who it is and what they're trying to do and there's no guarantee that it's somebody who'd be trying to help the Galanthi either who knows Overall, a good little dream and action sequence with mixed messages about how Amalia needs to complete a mission. Did you recognize Myrtle all dolled up like that? Uh, I did. I sort of like, 
well, after it, it happened, and I yeah. and I sort of like it's like a blink and you miss it sort of sort yeah. of thing. I was like, hang on, is that Myrtle? And Myrtle's is for <laughs> those who are sort of not sure. She's the one that speaks in all the different languages. Yeah, 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 yeah. And but but this time, yeah, she's actually speaking in English, which, which yeah, sort of made me went like, whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Amalia and Penance reunite back at the orphanage, and she offers Penance her biggest secret, her name, Zephyr Alexis Levine. Once again, another episode that needed to end on more of an ominous note or the like to drag the audience into the next part of the series, even though, you know, there's been a lot of ominous shit all episode, but just needed that, just that one little kicker at the end, like a after credit sequence or something like that to say, Ooh, look out. There's still more bad people on the way sort of thing. That's just my opinion. Obviously they decided to do it differently. So whatever. And, and um, okay. <laughs> Um, I'll just do some thoughts. You can just jump in because fuck, how long have we been going? I yeah, go for it. It's going to be a long one. Okay. Overall, quite a good <laughs> episode. I'd say probably the best of the series so far. Certainly one of the oh, most. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot to process and could do with a rewatch. If you want to catch up, even better. Um, had to watch the sequence stuff where she touched the orb a second time to pick up everything because that was like the sequence in... Um, force awakens when um ray touched the lightsaber oh yeah very yeah. similar sequence to that and just all this stuff washes over you and the first time you watch it that you don't you know it's like you don't necessarily hear yoda or obi-wan's voice and all that sort of stuff so it was really weird in that way but it was, it was still well done um it's a it's a lot like two episodes jammed into one huge amount of content and new stuff it does redeem the series a bit as i feel like i was finally allowed to have a better understanding of what is going on with the show. Not all mysteries were revealed or explained, but that was okay. Agreement there? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I can kind of see why they wanted to keep it secret, but God, six episodes. You know, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people would have bailed oh, or had bailed before that. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. I think it's pretty clear that this show has the objective of going on for more than one season, and I mean more than 12 episodes. Um, personally, I don't think they're going to achieve this. So it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Will they, you know, will the network say to them, okay, you got six more episodes, but we want you to wrap it up. Yeah, that, that um, could be true. Yeah. yeah. Which, which would be all right. It, Cause you know, not, not every show should go with forever, but like I say, I'm sure they got, I'm sure they got scope for this thing to go for years. They usually do have that sort of thing, <laughs> but, but in this case, I, I think that's going to be taken away from them. So will they do it the right way and just, try and wrap it up properly or will they do it the irresponsible way that some series producers go and just say well we're going to leave, leave, leave on the biggest cliffhanger imaginable and you have to renew us so that's that's <laughs> blown up on a few producers shows faces anyway these revelations broaden the scope of the series in a good way but it seems unfair that we went through so much story without really knowing what was going on it's like the story really starts at this point when it is better, where it's been understood what is at stake. This episode effectively undermines some of our previous reviews, especially that of episode five, where I was wondering about Malia's motivations and all that sort of stuff. And I, I said it was bad writing, but it was just, just the way it had to be. But fuck, I wasn't to know. So, yeah. So mm. I, I don't know. And, and it's supposedly the second series of six episodes gonna, is going to go into production next month. And if that's the case, we're probably not going to see this 
until the end of the year at the earliest, but probably oh. early next year. Or, or next year, yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be a huge gap um, between the seasons. So I, once again, is that a very long time to make people wait? You know, it's probably going to be, it's definitely going to be more than six months, I'd imagine, unless they just push it out faster or something like that. Depends on it's being released at the time. Yeah, like I say, I, I was ready to, oh God, the times I've been ready to chuck it out on this show too. <laughs> but, but I'm willing to, you know, stick it through. But but it really depends where we go season two. If season two just starts having all these pissy little unrelated episodes again, you know what I mean? If, if, yeah. it, if it just goes back to that small scale sort of shit, it's like stuff you guys, you know, you've promised something bigger, you've promised, promised something more interesting. They've set up a lot of stuff. Can they follow through on you know what they've done that sort of thing? As for ratings, I'd give this episode, I'd give this one a four out of five. Oh yeah, I haven't even thought about that. Um, I'd, I'd give it a four out of five just because, like I said, it's, it showed a lot of promise, showed a lot of potential. The bits that they showed that were from the future were almost like they were made by a completely different set of people. I thought that. Really- oh, absolutely, yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah, they were very well staged, all that sort of stuff. Very interesting. A lot of action, a lot of drama, a lot of exposition, but they managed to jam it all in well. It's 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 almost a shame to think we won't see the um, Scarface version of Amalia again. That's that's kind of disappointing. It'd be good if they could incorporate that actress in some way because she did a fantastic job. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. But <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, but, uh, maybe there might, might be some flashbacks or something, oh, maybe. There, there might be some scope for some really big flash forwards and that sort of thing. Now now that we know, I, I guess the producers can say, well, we can show you whatever we want now because, you know, you, you know what's going on. Whereas before it's just like, fuck you, you just have to guess what's going on. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it's it's really going to, they're really going to see how it goes. I don't know if where we might also be at the end of, the stuff that was plotted out by Joss. Oh, that's that's a good theory. Um, possibly. I mean, the lady. Uh, we should look at. Should have looked at all this up. The lady who wrote this episode. Hmm. Uh, I know she used to work with him on Buffy, and I think okay. she used to write some of the good stuff on Buffy. Oh, okay. So, I mean, maybe Joss and her created the show, but because she's not as well known as Joss, um, yeah. she you know, might have just sort of took a backseat. But if she's capable of writing what we had in that last episode into f- future episodes, I think we're in safe hands and probably don't need Joss, which they haven't really sort of publicly sort of wove, waved flag saying, Joss created this, Joss, you know, obviously because of um, yeah, that, yeah, it's it's been very low key. The, the main thing we saw was Joss, Joss, Joss when it was particularly episode one, where it was written, created, and directed by Joss. That was, you know, obvi- that, that made it obvious it was his baby. But yeah. they said even the promotion of the series has downplayed his role in it and all that sort of stuff. You never know. She, he, he, Joss might be helping her out as well. It's entirely possible. True, uh, true. Yeah, you know, while he might not be involved in the project anymore, he might not want to see it crash and burn either. Oh no, so, no, no one would want to see that. Yeah. No, no, exactly. So for HBO, um, which I, I assume is the main sort of producer behind this sort of thing, there's there's a lot of interesting things they can do. I'm sure the next season they'll probably be inter- they'll probably be you know the second part of the season they're probably going to be tempted to do something silly like introduce other cast members and that when it's 
jam-packed with cast members who haven't haven't had enough yeah. <laughs> time anyway. Oh, there, there, I don't think there was any any scenes with fucking Lord Madden, whatever his name was, this episode either, which was like, oh, thank God. And uh, <laughs> and none, none with the um, with the exotic club either, which tend to be pretty tedious. Scenes. No, not, not exotic club like, either. Yeah, yeah none uh, of that which, stuff. Like, or, or even Monday. I don't think Monday was. No, in Monday it, wasn't Monday. in it at all either. And and, and you're there. It's like we don't really need Monday. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, and, and it's sad in a way, but it just shows how they've overstuffed this series. We with just too much stuff. Yeah. So you know, like I say, it's, it's definitely not the worst ever. Um, it, it's rare for a show at for an episode of a show at this stage to turn things around a bit, I think, but they, they did it successfully. But I think it was because it was obviously they had been planning this from the start. If this had have been just like, we're going to desperately try and revamp things that might've sucked, but there, there was just, you know, like the way it all fitted in with what was going on, you know, from um, Amalia's strange accent to all the, all the other factors and all that sort of thing. It made sense. So I think good potential. So what, what sort of star rating would you give it? Do you think after? Yeah, I'll give it a four for, for for this episode. Yeah, for for an all, overall season, I'm probably going to give it probably a three. I'd probably just be because of the previous episodes irked me, and as I said, I sort of just hung in just to sort of see where it would go to just to sort of finish it. But now after this, this the last episode, I'm kind of like. They've got me back in again, I, I think. Yeah. But uh, but uh, but it, it took, I guess, revealing that you know the the what, who Amalia is and and where yeah. Amalia sort of originally came from. Um, yeah, it, it sort of probably really needed that. Maybe oh, I don't know, maybe in episode three or something like that. Just a, I know, well, yeah, a, think, te- a bit more think, of a, a teaser or something. Yeah, yeah, they they needed to stop dropping, start dropping more obvious sort of clue, mm, mm. all that sort of thing. Or just start a, just start Amalia having her so like future flashbacks, but just having jumping into that sort of era. Yeah, that would have been cool. Future yeah. where, where she doesn't know what it's what it means, and we don't know what it means either. But it would be it would have been especially intriguing, and that would that would have been a good way to to drag people in. You know, because if Amalia starts having yeah, like I said, having the Ford flashbacks of helicopters flying around and shooting and all that sort of stuff, just going into her future life, just would have worked a lot better. So absolutely, yeah. So, you know, it, it, to me, I, I give it four out of five just because it shows the best potential of this show, which is getting back towards more of a classic Joss. Would you agree? Oh, it's been a while since I've sort of just trying to think about Firefly and Buffy and all that sort of stuff. And I guess he never really had secrets or as secretive uh, sort of uh, events that happen like it has in the nevers but um yeah i mean like you always sort of trying now who's the big bad in buffy and all that sort of stuff but there yeah, it just sort of yeah i i'm not sure if it's like old school joss but like like yeah it's, it's it was well done it was still well done yeah yeah exactly so all right well this has probably gone i don't know how long this has gone on for probably gone longer <laughs> so we'll probably we'll wrap it up there Hope everybody's enjoyed this and uh, we'll be back in God knows how long with another episode of the Nevers and we'll be doing lots of other stuff in the meantime anyway. So thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you later.
Madeleine. <laughs> oh, fucking did it, didn't I? Oh. <laughs> lady. Melody. Melody. I was waiting for that. Oh, damn it. I've missed that one. Start again. Oh. Later, she over here. I can't hang on. <laughs> I know. Oh, because I didn't spell that one out. <laughs> if you're afflicted by a malady, talk to Mac. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, here we go. Okay. Later, she overhears Sarah, who we know will eventually become Madeline. How do I know to you're just giving me outtakes, that's what you're doing. <laughs>